Praise be to God. Jesus changes lives, doesn't he? I never get tired of hearing the stories of lives changed by Christ. That's revival. Erica is now part of our Regen ministry. Regen, listen, it's more than an addiction recovery program. It's a life-changing ministry, not a program, but a process helping people simply assimilate the truth of what Jesus did at Calvary. Remember, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So it's more than a drug addiction recovery program. Listen, we've all had issues in our life that keeps us from living the abundant life in Christ. Anxiety, depression, fear, insecurity. As you appropriate the truth of what Jesus did at Calvary, that's what sets you free. And that's what two weeks ago was about, the revival weekend. Stories are still rolling in of lives changed by Christ. Friday night, of course, uh, we began. And it's all about Romans chapter seven. What we learned is just like being on an exercise bike. You can work really hard and go nowhere. The answer is not more behavior modification. The answer is not more self-determination. The answer is never, I'm gonna work harder, try better. I really mean it this time. It's not empty religion of keeping a list of things to do. No, it's rather what Jesus has already done for you. And that's what we learned Saturday night. Romans 6 tells us that we cannot reform our sin nature. We cannot make it fall into submission through self-discipline. It's all about a crucifixion. On the cross of Christ, you understand you were in Christ, and it says in Romans 6 and verse 6, your sin nature was crucified with Christ, so that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. And Saturday night we talked about this. How much sense does it make to carry around your sin with you? to enter into a peaceful coalition. And you understand, just like Satan as the serpent in Genesis 3 deceived Eve, he continues to deceive people today in the 21st century by getting us to get on our own what God would have us get anyway, only in his way. But do you understand that in Genesis 3.15, we learn that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. Don't pick it up again. Sunday morning, we learned, remember, it's all about yielding to the master, that Jesus is the Lord. He is the master. And because he loves us, we can yield to him. We can trust him because he knows what is best for us. And you will have a master. It will either be the Savior or it will be sin, but you will serve one of two masters. Sin is a cruel taskmaster, but Jesus, he is not a hard master. He said, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest as you learn to to trust the master, yielding your life to the master. And then church Sunday night was one of the most holy moments I have ever experienced in 21 years of preaching. As we saw an outpouring of God's spirit, a spirit of cleansing, a spirit of freedom. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we pick up our study in 1 Peter once again. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we begin. Now, as we begin in 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to do a flashback to 1 Peter chapter 3. Last week where Chad preached from. Because you have to connect today to last week as Peter is continuing the same thought into chapter 4. preaching to a suffering church. 
and are learning from this suffering church of the first century what God is doing in the suffering today in your life and perhaps mine in the 21st century that there is purpose in the pain. He says these words in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, this was last week, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And Chad preached this text last week, did a remarkable job of teaching that Jesus suffered for our sin, went into the grave, but three days later he rose again, that he is alive today. And for three days, listen, he wasn't just taking a three-day nap. For three days in Hades, that's the Greek word, he was on the paradise side of Hades. Remember what he said to the, to the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus taught in Luke 16 that it had two compartments in Hades. You had the paradise side where the Old Testament saints went, and then a great gulf separated that from the hot side of Hades, what we commonly think of as hell. And what you have for three days is Jesus standing in paradise, shouting across that great gulf to the spirits on the other side, those fallen angels that sinned at the time of Noah. And what was he doing for three days? He is preaching the gospel. He is preaching victory. He is preaching that the death could not hold him and the devil could not defeat him and he's going to rise again on day three and that's exactly what he did. It says in Ephesians chapter four that before he ascended, he first descended to the lower parts of the earth and on day three, he ascended, he resurrected, captivity was led away to freedom and victory and in essence, he tore down the goalposts right in front of his enemies. Colossians 2.15 puts it this way, that Jesus at his resurrection, he disarmed his every enemy, every power and principality, putting them to open shame, making public spectacle of them. He tore down the goalposts. I, I, uh, I hope to see this this year. It's football season now. I don't plan on seeing it this year, but I hope to see it this year. When, you, um, when you're a Kansas football fan, you, you hang on to some memories, no matter how long ago they were, Okay. And so I'll never forget in 2007, Kansas football beat the Nebraska Cornhuskers for the first time in 36 years. I didn't know if I should clap or cry. First time in 36 years. I'm not sure what to do. I chose to clap instead, but I remember watching the entire stadium empty into the field and they tore down the goalposts. Is there any godly people here today at all? Matt Bartle? No, he's shaking his head no. Okay, so about two years later, I remember Kansas playing Mizzou and Arrowhead. They called it Arrowhead Armageddon. We lose on a last second field goal. It was the worst walk to the parking lot of my life. I'm surrounded by 10,000 Mizzou fans, and they're all shouting, M-I-Z. Z-O-U, you guys are the worst fans ever. You understand that, right? (laughs) Worst fans ever. Worst fans ever. I'm trying to tell you, this is what I picture. When I think about Jesus resurrecting, Colossians 2.15, he is literally celebrating in the face of his enemies. He is tearing down the goalposts. He's not shouting M-I-Z. He's shouting, go (laughs) K-U. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I made that part up. (laughs) But you know what Chad said last week, best line of the week. Listen, we don't need a mascot, we need a monarch. Jesus is not a mascot, Jesus is a monarch. Do you understand mascots can't change your life? 
And that's why so many people think they follow Jesus, but they're following the wrong Jesus. They don't follow him as the monarch of their life. He's simply a mascot, like he's going to cheer you on and come on, you can do it. I really love you. I believe in you. No, listen, that Jesus doesn't change your life. Until you surrender all that you have for all that you are, he's more than a mascot. He's the Messiah. He is a monarch. That means he is sovereign over your life. Now, I share all that to say, you, you gotta understand, last week, if you missed last week, you need a flashback to connect it to this week, because Peter, in 1 Peter 4 and verse 1, is gonna connect that thought, the same thought. Look at what it says in 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, therefore, since Jesus is a monarch, not a mascot, therefore, since he suffered for our sin and rose again, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And right there you have the battle line. You have the line in the sand. You're either gonna live for the lusts of men, the sin that dwells within, or you're gonna live to fulfill the will of God. There it is. And this is, this is one of two. You're, you're not gonna straddle this line. You're either gonna be on this side or on this side. And, and you're either gonna fulfill the lusts of men or the will of God. Look at what Peter says. You need to arm yourself with what? Arm yourself with the same mind, that mind of Christ, if you want to fulfill the will of God in your life and live the abundant life, life of freedom and victory and power and authority and not become a slave to sin again. I want you to see you need to arm yourself. Why? Because it's war. Do you understand that we're at war? It's really war. It's not an allegory. Ephesians 6, 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. To make war on sin demands we arm ourselves with the mind of him. I'm talking about the mind of Christ. Because we are at war with the enemies on the outside and the enemy on the inside. Do you understand the number one enemy we war with every day is inside of us all? I need to be delivered from me. I am my own worst enemy. And I know that's true of you because it's true of me. We go through the same stuff because we're all made of the same stuff. And what he's talking about is winning the war within. You can't win the war on the outside if you're not winning the war on the inside. He's saying you need to arm yourself with the mind of him, the mind of the one that suffered for our sin. He says this in 1 Peter 1.13, going back several months to the very opening chapter of this letter. He puts it this way. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, being sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what's it mean to gird up the loins of your mind? He's saying make ready for war. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for war. Make ready for war every single day. Uh, he, he's using the imagery of a Roman soldier here, girding up their loins, getting ready for war. This was the day where manly men in history wore dresses. They did. Roman soldiers going to war wore dresses, they wore tunics. Now their legs were gonna be encumbered if they did not roll that tunic up and tie it into their belt. It was called girding up your loins in these ancient days. And so as you were getting ready for work or you were getting ready for war, you would gird up your loins by rolling up your skirt and tying it 
into the girdle, that leather belt around the waist. And now you see Peter's using that same imagery of your mind. He's saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready for work and get ready for war. And that's the call in the Christian life. Every single day as a Christian, it's a call to work and it's a call to war, girding up the loins of your mind, making ready for war. Listen, Jesus has set us free, but we have to stand every day in that victory and not give up ground to the enemy. And you won't do that if you're not making your mind ready for war, girding up the loins of your mind. Now listen, not only are we to gird up the loins of the mind, they would tie their tunic off in that leather belt, but that leather belt was a thick, thick leather belt. Think of a weight belt. And what was that doing? It was protecting the softer, more vulnerable parts of their midsection, uh, the softer, more vulnerable parts of their solar plexus. Uh, and, and that is the implication, I think, here of what Peter's making. Listen, some of us have some soft, flabby thinking. We need to gird up the loins of our mind because any part of your life that is an exercise constantly will atrophy. I got back from vacation this week and had a wonderful vacation, but, uh, but I got back to my workout. I do an ab routine twice a week called P90X. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to get back in the rhythm, start working out. I hadn't worked out for a couple of weeks, and I'm doing my ab routine. And guys, I'm thinking, I, <sighs> I've never, what is the matter with me? <laughs> like, why is this so hard? I'll tell you why. Because I've been a beach bum for the last nine days. That's what happens. And the older you get, the faster it goes. I'm telling you, that's what happened. Any part of your life that doesn't get constant attention will atrophy. It's true of your body physically. It's true of your mind mentally and most of all your soul spiritually. That's why he's saying gird up the loins of your mind every single day because some of us are being defeated by the adversary because quite frankly we've got some soft flabby thinking. And we need to gird up the loins of our mind. How do you do that? Listen carefully. We need to understand every day that if you don't make your mind a battleground, Satan's going to make it a playground. Let that sink in a minute. If you don't see your mind as a battleground, Satan will make it his playground. And for many of us, our mind has become his playground because we don't see our mind as a battleground, girding up the loins of your mind every single day. Now, how do we go about that? How do we do that? How do we make it a battleground? The Apostle Paul speaks into this very thing. If you're gonna arm yourself with the mind of him, this is what it looks like, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse three. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He says, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or physical, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, those strongholds you have in your mind. Those areas of your life that Satan has hung on to, and now it's a stronghold of the enemy. You have weapons and you can win. Listen carefully. He says, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. There's the warfare. That's how to make your mind a battleground so it does not become Satan's playground. Casting down every argument, every time you have a thought that is contrary to the word of God, you know that it did not originate with the spirit of God. 
Every time you have a thought that is contrary to the truth of God, you know right away it either comes from your fallen flesh from within or a deceiving demonic spirit from without. What do you do? Immediately you recognize that's a lie. I will not walk in lies. I will walk in truth. You immediately cast it out. Now listen, you can't just cast it out without replacing it with something. He says, replacing it then with a God thought, bringing every thought into the captivity to obedience of Jesus Christ. That's how you make this battleground and you take your stand every single day. This is how you take back that stolen ground of the enemy when he's made your mind a playground. Listen, even when you're not feeling what is right, you learn to think what is right because right feeling will follow right thinking. Notice, he didn't tell you to command your emotions. Take your emotions captive. You know why? Because you can't. You can't help but feel what you feel, but you can always help think what you think. And eventually, right thinking leads to right feeling, and right thinking is what leads to right living. So you can't change what you do outwardly and you tell you are changing how you think inwardly. And this is what is so critical. This is what he's saying now. To arm yourself with the mind of Christ. To arm yourself with the one who suffered for your sin. Arm yourself with that same mind. Because you can't change what you do until Jesus changes what you are. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. See, if you end up in life in an ungodly destination, it all began with the inner meditations. It all begins with thinking. Right thinking is what eventually leads to right living. And that's why we need the mind of Christ, Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus too. Now, having said that, we need to go back, and this is what Peter's talking about now when he says in 1 Peter 4, 1, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. You know what, Jesus, and he, 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 he expected to be persecuted. He expected to have to suffer. He expected to have to sacrifice. See, this is the mind of Christ. He expected a life of pain. But he understood that there was God's purpose in that pain. We need to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, arming ourselves with the one who suffered in the flesh. He suffered for our sin. In the same way, we need to have that same mind now of Christ that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, meaning this life we now live in this temporary place of space and time for the lusts of men, but rather for the will of God. Now listen very carefully. To think like Christ is to think about a cross. And we're right back where we were two weeks ago for our revival weekend, the crucified life. To think like Christ is to think about a cross. Remember, Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if you wanna follow me, you wanna come after me, you're gonna have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. 
See, the call, the condition of what it really means to be a Christian, you want to be a true disciple, a follower of Jesus, there's two things. You're going to have to deny yourself, and you're going to have to die to yourself. That's what Jesus was teaching. Deny yourself, take up your cross. A cross was not something you wore. It was something you bore. It was a thing that was bloody. It was ugly. It was painful. It was brutal. It was excruciation. It was a crucifixion. Do you understand what Jesus was teaching? The cross is a cost. This is a, a follower of Jesus Christ. He's, he's saying, Recognize your co-crucifixion with Christ. Galatians 2 and verse 20. The apostle Paul recognized his co-crucifixion, that because he was in Christ, he also was crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And what we're learning is simply this. To be delivered from sin's penalty, Christ died. But to be delivered from sin's power, you die. It happened once already in history, Galatians 2.20, but now you have to do it daily, 1 Corinthians 15.31, I die daily. That means every single day I die to myself, I die to my sin to live instead for him instead of the lust of men that dwell with him. Now I'm set free to live the will of God for my life, which is freedom and victory from sin, not freedom you see to sin. It is the crucified life once again to have the mind of Christ is to think about a cross. Now listen very carefully. Romans 12.1 puts it this way. I beseech you, or I urge you strongly, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now here's the remarkable thing about a living sacrifice. To the Jews, they could not have fathomed a living sacrifice. That's like the ultimate oxymoron. A sacrifice is something that has died. A sacrifice is something that does not live. But do you understand what Paul's saying? Now we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. My body is a living sacrifice to him. Meaning my body is not mine. My body belongs to him. So much for that new modern saying, my body, my choice. No. As a child of God, my body is not mine. It belongs to him. I present it to him, which means it's not my choice. I don't have the choice to use my body for sin. I present it every single day to him. This is the crucified life. I live because I'm dead. And every day that I die, I'm fully alive. Now, when I choose to live... I die. You know why? Because only when I choose to live do I sin. And the wages of sin is death. That's the paradox of the Christian life. You present your body as a living sacrifice and you present your mind, verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, we're learning that having the mind of Christ to think with a cross is every single day having my mind in submission mission, my body in submission, making an active presentation. Today I take up the cross and I die to my rights and I give all rights to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just my mascot, my friend. No, he's my friend, but he's more than a mascot. He's the Messiah. He's the monarch of my life and his rule in my life is always right. And church, there comes a point where you have to make a definitive decision. I'll never forget at 21 years of age, I was trying to follow Jesus for the first time in a long, long time. I had a radical encounter with God at the age of 21 over Christmas break, 1989. I went back to school that next semester in January 1990, and my friends didn't know me. 
I mean, I had pretty much been Phil the party guy. I'm telling you, at 21 years of age, it's amazing how much sin you can squeeze into the first 21 years of life. I mean, I was a good little sinner. I'd done a lot of it. But I had a radical encounter with Jesus, and I went back to school that next semester. I was radically changed. No more going out, getting drunk, and going to the bars all night with the guys. But here's the deal. If you choose to follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. If you choose to follow sin, you're going to suffer more, but either way, you're going to suffer. And there's no lonelier place to be in the world than on a secular college campus when you're the only Christian you know. And all of a sudden, I was lonely. I was alone. And I'll never forget, a, a, a very formative moment in my life came when a friend of mine, a former drinking buddy, football player, but named Brian, he came to me one night and said, Phil, what's happened to you? You're not the same person you were. Why don't you go out drinking with us anymore? And I remember telling him, Brian, I've given my life to Jesus, and honestly, I'm tired of being a hypocrite. And you know what? He kind of shrugged his shoulders and went, wow, man, that's awesome. Good for you. Like, he, 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 you know, he, he didn't dog me down for it. He, he, he went out drinking anyway that night. But he was like, well, okay, it's good for you. Each to your own. But there's nothing more lonely than being the only Christian you know trying to walk it out. And that's who I was at that time of my life. So two, three weeks later, friends are going out again. They asked me, Phil, you want to go with us? It's Friday night. I'm all alone. I said, you know what? I'm going to go. And uh, I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to go to the bar and hang out. I'm not going to drink. My drinking days are over. And so I go to the bar with them that night. Had no intention of drinking. But if there's no lonelier place on earth than a secular college campus when you're the only Christian you know, the second loneliest place on earth is in a bar when you're the only one not drinking. So I think to myself, I'm just going to get a beer. I'm not going to drink it. I'm just going to get a beer and just hold it so I won't feel so weird being here. You see, deep down, the Holy Spirit was saying to me, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I've changed you. What are you doing here? But I was uncomfortable being there. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit now lived within me, right? So I go to the bar. I get this beer. Had no intention of drinking it. I immediately turn around, and guess who walks through the front door of that bar? Brian. I'll never forget the look in his eyes. He looked at me, he looked at my beer. He looked at me, he looked at my beer. Then he looked at me and he said, Phil, what are you doing here? The very same thing the Holy Spirit had been saying already. What are you doing here? And I will never forget the look of disappointment in his eyes. He was actually disappointed. You know why? Because even though the world may be stuck in their sin, they really deep down silently, they're cheering for someone to actually win. They may speak evil of you, defame you, make fun of you, but deep down, they actually kind of wish they could be like you. He was disappointed that night that I was there. You know what I said? I said, oh, it's just one. So lame. So lame, that was the last time that I ever bought a beer in my life. That night I went home to my apartment, I think I cried myself to sleep. That night for the first time in my life, I died. 
I died to that part of my life. I died to the bar life, never to go back again. It was a defining moment. You see, the cross is something you do daily, but there's defining moments in your life. What are some things you need to die to in your life that have just seemed to follow you around and keep you from living the abundant life in Christ? I knew for me, those days were over. It was a defining moment. I died to that part of my life, never to go back again. What are some years of your life to which you need to die? You need to have a funeral, and that funeral is yours. Listen, if you will follow Jesus, you're going to suffer, but if you follow sin, you're going to suffer more. This was a suffering church of the first century. They were a church that was an anomaly in Roman society, and they are suffering because they're not living like the average Roman. As Christians, they had a different worldview. They had a different set of moral values, but I've told you recently, what makes the church relevant is that we are different. Only once we stop being different did our message cease to be relevant. Let's embrace the fact that as Christians, we are different. We're light, not darkness. Let's stop trying to adjust our eyes to see in the darkness and just walk in the light, accept the fact that we're different, and as our society becomes more and more secularized, less and less Christian in worldview and values, we're gonna become more different. Let's embrace it. That's who the early church was. That's why they changed the world. Now he goes on here in verse three, says this, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Gentiles, non-Jews, think of pagans, think of people that are irreligious. That's the, the, the spirit of which he's using this term here. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. He's saying it's our past, it's not our present. Past not present, it's not our present reality. This is Erica's story. She told you about her past, and then she told you how Jesus has changed her so that now she has a different present reality, that she is now free and living in victory, and that story can be anyone's story that will make Jesus their monarch and not simply a mascot. Put it in the past. It's not to be in our present. When we walked, it says, in the lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries, I want you to notice for all this change in 2,000 years, how much is exactly the same. 2,000 years ago, Roman society was full of lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And as our society goes back, not to a Judeo-Christian civilization as we once were with its moral values, but back to a Greco-Roman civilization as we are now with its values, we're gonna see once again in some capacity what it was like to live as Christians of the first century. Lewdness and lust. We're talking about a pornographic society. Pornography is not a modern invention of modern man. It's been around for many millennia. Society of Roman times was a pornographic society, a promiscuous society. Marital infidelity was expected. Marital monogamy was a complete anomaly. Nobody expected to have one partner in marriage for life. I mean, this was a society that had the theater, and in theater, women could not function 
and act, and so they would actually take little boys and prepare them to be women so they could act in the theater with female roles, and they would literally emasculate them. Does that sound at all familiar? This is what he's talking about when he speaks to the early church, the lewdness and the lust and the orgies that would take place. The drunkenness, the revelries, the drinking parties. Friends, I was raised in an era of church life where I was taught it's a sin to have a drink of any kind for any reason. I was taught that, that alcohol for any reason, any time is a sin. I have since read the entire Bible more than once, and guess what? I don't see any verse, book, chapter, anywhere that condemns having a drink. If you want to have a glass of wine with your lasagna, I don't think God's mad at you. You want to have a beer with your hamburger, I don't think God's mad at you. The problem now, though, is the pendulum has gone this way. It was over here, now it's over here. You see, the problem is not the drink. The problem is drinks, plural. Where self-professing Christians today are perfectly fine getting buzzed, getting under the influence of alcohol. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you understand? The moment you are under the influence of alcohol, you're no longer under completely the influence of the Holy Spirit. Liquor stores, wine and spirits. How ironic, because when you get full of those spirits, you put yourself under the control of another spirit. Yet the pendulum has completely swung the other way. Buzz drinking is drunk drinking. If you're drinking to get tipsy, you're no longer under the control of the Holy Spirit, not completely. Quit fooling yourself. This is what Peter is saying. This was in our past. It's not to be in our present. Now listen, God is not against pleasure. God is the author of pleasure. What God is against is pleasure that is misplaced when pleasure is no longer in its proper place. So I confess recently that I have a weakness for ice cream. In fact, I love ice cream. Truth is, I can make a meal of ice cream. If I wanted to, I could finish this entire half gallon of ice cream without taking a breath. That is how much I love ice cream. There is nothing sinful about having a bowl of ice cream, church, yes? The rest of you are self-righteous hypocrite. <laughs> I said there's nothing sinful about enjoying a bowl of ice cream. No. Did you know there's nothing sinful about sex? God is the author of it. In fact, he wants you to enjoy it, but in his proper place, which is marriage between a man and a woman. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Matthew 19, verse 4. Do you know that alcohol is not a sin? You want to have a glass of wine? Have a glass of wine. Keep it in its proper place. Some of you shouldn't go past one. You know who you are. On the other hand, what happens with pleasure that's not in its proper place, like when we deny God and live independently, (laughs) 
pleasure that's not in its proper place will leave your life messy. Do you understand this? Pleasure not in its proper place will make a mess out of your life. And for a lot of us, this is who we are. See, God's not trying to take something from you, your pleasure. He wants to give something better to you. He wants your pleasure to be in his proper place. And I'm trying to tell you, a lot of us are living a very messy life. The good news is, Jesus, well, he has the power to clean up your life. Jesus has the power to take your mess and clean you up. Hallelujah, he does. And I hope that if you find your life a mess, you understand that's why God gave you the Messiah. It's to be in your past. It does not have to be in your present. You know the good news is? I get to do this three times a day. <laughs> Would you look at verse four? He says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. This is the world we live in today. Here, they're completely a mess, and they think it's strange that like we're gonna follow Jesus, speak evil of us, Oh, Phil, you know, he's such a prude. I mean, he'd, he'd never cheat on his wife. I mean, he's such a prude. I mean, he, he, he didn't look at pornography. What a weirdo. Man, this world's a mess. I mean, let's be honest. It's not going very good out there. All-time high of suicide. America's teens, 20-somethings. And yes, middle-aged men. Depression is what counselors now call the common cold of the counseling world. STDs, all-time high among America's teens. The world's in a mess, that's what sin brings. When you don't keep pleasure in its proper place, yet they're gonna speak evil of you, evil of me. because we follow Jesus. What if we just had the mind of Christ and we embrace the fact that it's gonna happen? We're gonna be misinterpreted, misquoted, misunderstood, at times defamed, slandered. It's what happened in the early days, this suffering church. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3. And verse 12, if everyone speaks well of you, it could be that you're not really living in the light. You've adjusted your eyes to see in the dark. Verse five, they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. When people speak evil of you for following Jesus, just remember, Peter's reminding the suffering church of the first century, they will give an account one day to the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. In the eyes of God, there's only two kinds of people in this world, the living and the dead. 
You either have been made alive through Christ, that's what Jesus called to being born again, or you're still dead, Ephesians 2, 1, in your trespasses and sins. And one day, God is going to judge us all, the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. The gospel was preached to the dead. And today there could be some listening online at Blue Spring, maybe Independence, right here in the Lee Summit Auditorium that is still dead in their sin. But the gospel was preached to them back then, and today it's been preached to you as well, that apart from Jesus, you're dead in sin. Romans 5 and verse 12, for he that sinned named Adam passed a death sentence on all men and all women, for all have sinned. You see, you need to be what Jesus called born again, because Romans 3 and verse 10, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. It says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But did you know the good news of the gospel is Romans 5 and verse 8. It says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is true and it's true for you that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that Jesus traded places with you on the cross of Calvary. The sinless son of God came like the sons of men to take all of our sin so that we could be forgiven, born again, and become like him. And Romans 3, Romans 6 and verse 10, it says this, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And verse 13 says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today is the day that you can be saved, not just from sin's penalty, but sin's power. To live a life of freedom and victory, verse seven, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. 2,000 years ago, the apostle Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. You see, in the eyes of God, with the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Messiah, the end times began. We talk about living in the end times today, and I'm convinced we are indeed living in the last of the last of the last days. Like I'm convinced biblically, prophetically, I have so many reasons I could share, I don't have time, but I'm convinced that we are living on the threshold of time as we know it, that we are living on the doorway of humanity, the doorway of eternity, the end of all things is at hand. Are you ready for eternity? Have you put your faith in that Jesus died for your sin and rose again? Have you given your life to him? Because we are living at the end of the end. If Peter lived at the beginning of the end, we're living at the end of the end. But the end is not the end, it's only the beginning. You're gonna live forever somewhere. Either with God or forever apart from God. Today is the day to make ready for eternity. I'm gonna pray right now. A simple prayer of faith. You can pray it with me right where you sit, over at Blue Springs, Independence. I'm gonna pray a prayer of faith. If you're not certain you're ready right now, I'm gonna pray and I want you to pray as we bow together right now. As soon as I say amen, if you pray this with me, I want you to look up. You're gonna see your campus pastor on the platform. I want you to go to him. Let him know that today you prayed that you have received the invitation 
of salvation right there online. You got a chance right where you sit in your living room to make ready for eternity right here in this auditorium. I want you to bow with me right now. Jesus, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice that they would make ready. There's even a shred of doubt in their mind's eye. If they died today, where they would be or what they would see. I pray that today they would make ready. Sweet friend, I want you to pray this with me right now, wherever you are. If you're not sure that you're ready for eternity, today can be the day that you change your destiny through what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary. Would you pray this with me right now? Pray it quietly. God will hear your prayer. Jesus, say, Jesus. I know that I have sinned, that I cannot get to heaven apart from you. Sin is not my past, it's my present. And I wanna change that. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I invite you to come in, change me from within not a mascot but Jesus I make you a monarch in my life I give you all rights to my life to change me to set me free in Jesus name I pray amen